let's um, let's get together and pray. We're going to be talking today about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, the passages that we commonly refer to as the Lord's Supper, and a little bit more. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you, and uh, Lord, we are grateful for who you are. We're grateful for you take all that we have to offer that's broken, that in itself is not worth very much. Like a child we come to and we make a drawing and you're as a proud parent just happy that we wouldn't give anything for you. And we're not a Rembrandt or a Renoir or anything fancy about that, but what you do best, which is redemption. You redeem those that are lost and broken. It is an amazing kind of love. So, Father, we ask you to help us to love in the way that you've loved us, to serve in the way that you served us, to seek you diligently, earnestly, to honor you in all things. And we pray for the message tonight that it be something that's a fragrant offering to your throne, that it builds unity, that we be of one accord, of one mind, of one purpose, with the one Savior, God, you are the Savior who's redeemed us. So we thank you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, um, for some reason, my computer acted very funny. And I couldn't save many things, and things got lost, so I've had to reprint it a few times. But... Let's start right at the beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. This is Paul's, um, basically his discourse to the Corinthian church. We've talked about this many times before, so most of you all know about this. Um, he's now talking about the Lord's Supper, and in the Gospels, in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and in Luke chapter 22, you get to see the Gospels, you know, where, where Jesus basically did the Last Supper before the very night that he was betrayed. And he talked to his 12 and shared intimately with them what's going on. And the church recognized that, and Paul talks about that. So the church was already putting this in practice, and Paul's addressing some things of what they need to do and how they need to conduct themselves in that. So the background is, this is something that's now, because of what Jesus did, has become common practice within the church. The Corinthian church had a different take on it, and Paul's there to basically tell them, okay, you need to set some things straight. And we, the blessing for us is, we commonly read from that. Every time we give communion, we read from this chapter all the time, because it so succinctly puts in together what it's about. So first, on chapters... Chapter 11, verse 17 to 19. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So, just like we've talked before, you know, Paul's again addressing within Corinthian church that they're not of one accord. There's different parties. Some supported Apollos, some like Paul, some like Peter, and they have different philosophies, and they've separated in factions. 
and they are not united. And basically, he says, look, this is not good. What you're doing is making things worse. Your witness of Jesus Christ is being hindered by your actions because you're so puffed up and worried about yourself and your thoughts. Okay? They were elitist, thinking some are better than others. They kept talking about what they can do in Christ. We talked about that already. The freedoms, quote-unquote, that they have to do whatever they want because they're now not bound by law. And we've already addressed that, that Paul talked about that, yes, you're not bound by law, but you are bound by love. Okay, and we'll talk more about that love. When you're bound by love, that means considering others greater than yourselves. Okay, and then the arrogance and presumption. They thought they were wise. They thought they knew it. And that for us is a challenge because sometimes we think we have different divisions within different bodies. You have so many different denominations. Each denomination sometimes thinks we have the right answer. They don't. We know it the right way. They don't. Okay, and we've separated, we've created schisms or, and separation because of that. So, too often the decisions of what we make, even within the different denominations, and, and I've talked about this before, denominationalism happened right after the Protestant Reformation. You got to see that initially there was really two. There was the Roman Catholic Church and the, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That was the separation and the great schism of 10... 54, and then we had the Reformation. Okay, and if you know anything about Reformation history, Martin Luther's uh, thesis that he put onto the uh, church door in Wittenberg in 1517 is kind of considered the mark of it, that there's Jan Hus, who's the Czech before that time, and then after, around that same time of Martin Luther, there was also Ulrich Zwingli, and there was... Um, Jean Colvin, that we call John Calvin by his English name, and this John Knox, who started Presbyterianism. So many reformers at that time wanted to do something new, but each had a different belief, okay? And because of that, we started to separate. Now, in the United States, we've done it even more. We don't think there should be instruments in church, so we set up our own non-instrumental church. We think, you know, reformed, then you have those who are Armenian. You separate based on once saved or always saved, you know, lots of these doctrinal things, but we become focused on our wisdom, our intellect, instead of our relationship. Praise God, some of that has changed. Ecumenism, the idea of unity, of being of one accord in the Spirit, is good if it's on the basic foundational principles. It's not good if they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They don't believe that he died for his sins and that he is part of the Trinity, that he's fully God. So, there's some of the things that we'll talk a little bit more about as well in terms of love, of what we need to do. But generally, we're seeing some things where we can work together and we're different. We don't, we have that with the Thanksgiving meal um, when we met Thanksgiving service uh, that many of you attended here in the community for the community-wide Thanksgiving service in Grand County. Back in the 90s, I went to Promise Keepers. You know, some of us went all the way to Washington, D.C. for that. Some of those things, working one accord, is good. Trying to get together in that, um, being of one accord, is good. So being unified is good based on the foundational principles. Instead of separating. And so Paul's addressing that, that natural fleshly instinct to try to say, I'm right, you're wrong. So, let's go on to the next part, the bad conduct of the Corinthians in 
verses 20 to 22. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Okay, so at that time, he's basically saying, you have to realize, from that culture, um, many of them got together with festivals and feasts, kind of the Bacchian Greek thing, and you can, Dionysus, Dionysus, the Bacchus is the Roman version of it, but basically, they'd have wild orgy kind of parties where they'd all get together and do things. And so when I got introduced in the church, we're just going to have party month, funny stuff, love feast. We'll get together and just party and have fun together as the church. But they even created this separation. Those who are wealthy got to eat in a separate area than those who are poor. So instead of the church eating together and one meal together, they separated based on status. It's interesting, when I was in India talking with um, Gunakumar, who's the head of the ministry that we're going to be going down at the end of the month, he said that even Christians in India still have a caste system. So the caste system had basically four basic status in India. You have the Brahmin, the teacher class. You have the Kshatriya, which is the warrior ruling class. You have the Vasayas, which are the merchant class, and the Shudras, which are the farmer class. And then you those who didn't fit, which they called untouchables. Okay, so classless. You could call the fifth class, but basically by their definitions, yeah. And that has been adopted into that. You have people looking at, you know, I'm going to marry a Christian from a better caste. I'm like, we tend to do based on status. We tend to make choices based on how well they're doing. We're not looking at how do we marry based on, hmm, how much do they love Jesus? How much are they aligned in the purpose and ministry that God wants to do? So you have to watch some of the things in our decisions that we're looking at. Are we, like them, looking at class status? And so Paul's basically saying, hey, come on, you guys. This is not what love is really about. You're basically selfish, focused on what you want. You're getting... And so he's going to admonish them here about um, if you want to eat and drink selfishly, do it at home. Don't do it here. Let's move on to the next in verses 28 to 26. So, I've addressed the first part where he's basically said his concerns about the Corinthian church. It's hard at sometimes for us to really relate to that because we go, we don't quite do that. Okay? I understand. The principles we have to go is, hey, what is the trend in our flesh? And to recognize where our flesh goes. Okay, now into verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So, 
most of the message today is going to focus on those verses. Okay? So if you're going to remember everything from anything from today, I really want you to remember those passages. Okay? Verses 23 to 26 are probably the, the most important parts of this last half of the chapter. This is what we share at communion. When you have people speak up and they're about to give communion, they're talking about this. So when you look at it, he broke it and said, he says, this, you know, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Now, in John, it says Jesus' body was not broken. He was pierced, but it wasn't broken. Okay? And it goes back to the Psalms in the Old Testament to show the processing. What he's talking about is a remembrance, a principle of what he did. Not that, so as we break the bread, it basically talks about the sacrifice that Jesus did, not that his body was actually broken. The reason that's going to be important has to do with later when we talk about what is the meaning of communion. Okay? We've talked about before. The Last Supper, you remember, is the Passover meal, the cedar. Okay? It's a re... Um, it's a redefinition. It's a re... Uh, pardon me? Yeah, reenactment, but more than that. It's a re-envisioning of the, of, of the Passover. The Passover was the lamb. Jesus is that lamb. Okay? It talks about the unleavened bread. It's the principle they're doing. Come on in. So, when did the Passover happen? The Passover happened in the book of Exodus when they left. Remember the judgments that the um, God caused on the Egyptians? Okay, at the time of Pharaoh, Moses said, this is what's going to happen. He told all, you need to bring this lamb into the house. You need to take care of this lamb, and then eventually you're going to kill that lamb, and you're going to put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, and because you do that, the angel of death will not come and kill your firstborn. Okay? The point is, there was a sacrifice, that sacrifice offered protection. That's what Jesus focused on. God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, is what offers us protection. There's nothing the Israelites do to offer them protection against the judgment of God. There's nothing we can do that does that. Only what Christ did. And we'll talk more about what that means. Now, what I'm going to do now, it's also about, let me talk about, the old covenant was you had to have blood, the sacrifice of blood to cleanse sin. And so we talk about that blood over and over in our church. The new covenant is Jesus' blood is what cleanses us. That's symbolic, Jesus' blood cleansing us. It's his sacrifice that cleanses us. It's his substitutionary atonement. Basically, his being, he taking the penalty for all our sins. Okay. That new covenant is spoken of in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. It's about God's word and will in us. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. What they're saying, what God's done with Jesus, is instead of being a legalistic thing that you have to follow, a ritual, a form. It's going to be something that's changed internally. So the whole aspect that God's always focused on, and everything we're talking about, is what's going on inside of us. What's going on inside of our hearts. The challenge for all of us is we can do a lot of form things. We can, we can do all the right things, attend church, 
hide self and serve, but underneath in our hearts, we could still be wicked and focused on self. I'm worried about how people think about me. Do they think I'm a nice guy? Do they think I'm a good person? I mentioned this first, this other lady, and does she think I'm a good person because she sees I'm doing all this good stuff? You could see all the corrupt motives that we have. People do for business reasons. They put a Christian ichthus, a symbol, a fish symbol on my truck so that I get business. People think I'm an ethical businessman. When you see many Christians, and you see that with many who use the name and blaspheme the name of Christ and use it to swindle people. Pastors will do that, asking people for donations for their own pre- personal benefit. And they're on their, they have their fourth jet because people give saying, that's what God wants you to do when it's really focused on self. The reason I'm saying that is this, the whole thing God's doing in the New Covenant is, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Every day he's asking this question, where's your heart? What are you thinking? What are you focused on? What's your priority? Who do you love first and foremost? Yourself or me? Do you love yourselves or me? So, what I'm going to do now is talk a little about, and we're going to show a little video clip. When we take the covenant, and we're going to talk about what it means and what we need to do, but when we take it and you know, we've done it here so many times. Um, I, I don't know anybody who hasn't seen it or partaken in it. You know, we pass the elements. Those elements are the bread, which could be a wafer, which is what we do. Some people break bread, which is the other one is the drink, the blood. It was of the vine, which we use grape juice here. Some churches, the Roman Catholic Church, actually use wine. There's a debate about it. It's called fruit of the wine. Some interpret it being actual wine. Some of interpreted interpret it be wine. Some saying it can be grape. Was it really fermented? What's the percentage that is fermented? There's a lot of debate about that. Those are really secondary issues. Okay? Those are not primary issues. Okay? We have elected not to use actual wine primarily because we don't want to be a stumbling block. Okay? That whole principle that we talked about in the preceding chapters in Corinthians is what is it that is a blessing to others? How do we do what we do to be a blessing for others and not focus on ourselves? And so doing grape juice is a blessing to others. Okay? We're also going to talk about, and I'm going to show the video clip because I want you to watch this, that talks about what it means to different churches. Okay? So it means different things, the, what we do, the Lord's Supper. Go ahead, Josh, and cue it up. I want you to, it's better than I can say it. Thank you, Josh. Okay, so before we go forward from this, if you have any questions from what he's talking about, it's a lot there, so this is your chance to ask. So he talks about four views. One, the Roman Catholic, which basically says the actual spiritual part changes. So when the priest goes back and blesses the stuff and he blesses it before God, it actually changes in the very nature to become the blood and body of Christ. They base that on the Gospels, and that's where they said, this is my body, okay, this is my blood. And that's where they say the blood and the covenant. And that's what Roman Catholics believe. Luther comes along and says, the sponge analogy, which says consubstantiation, which, which basically says, it's still the wafer, it's still the wafer, the wine or the grape juice is still the grape juice, but... Christ is right there with it. Something happens that moment, it becomes something there. 
Okay? Both of those things is based on what's called sacramental theology. Okay? So Roman Catholics and even Lutherans and Anglicans or Episcopalians believe in sacraments. There are things that you do. Because you do that, grace is conferred to you. They use marriage as a sacrament. They use ordination as a sacrament. They use the rituals that you have. They use the Roman Catholics when they do the last rites before you die as sacraments. And they believe that God confers, He gives grace because of it. That is not what we believe. Okay? Even the part where they use the one at the end, I would use that as the third one, but his was the best video, which is the view that Calvin had, which is most reformed in Presbyterian churches, believe that when you have communion, there's something magical in terms of a spiritual presence, even though it's not there. Something happens in the church, and Calvin's basically saying, something goes on. Okay, something really spiritual goes on that makes it a particular holy moment. We don't. We tend to follow through with the idea of Zwingli, where it's a symbol, it's emblematic, meaning that it represents what we believe. Okay? Now, just like anything else that we do, when we do prayer here, when we do worship here, and when two or three are gathered, the Holy Spirit can be present. When you come forward like Sunday at the very end of the service, I don't know what it was. Something happened. Certainly something happened within me. Okay, I came forward for prayer. I was broken by God, weeping with, with Glenn. And God was doing something. Was the presence of God there? Absolutely. And that is because of what we bring in, where we are. So the, what I'm letting you know and what I want you to understand is our belief system is basically how we comport ourselves, what we're seeking, are we focused on God or are we focused on ourselves? All those things bring the spiritual presence of God. And it can be that when we do communion, when we do the Lord's Supper, and as they call it, the Eucharist, all different synonyms for the same thing, it can be a holy moment where the Spirit of God is present. But that's dependent on whether we're surrendered and seeking earnestly. Jesus Christ. Not because the nature in itself is something special. Does that make sense? That is something that we don't. That's what Calvin believed. That's what the Lutherans believe with Martin Luther. And that's what Roman Catholics believe. That just because you do it, automatically, it's something holy. Okay? It needs to be holy. Just like when we worship, it needs to be holy. Just like when we pray, it needs to be holy. But the stuff itself is wholly dependent on whether or not we're submitted to Christ. How God takes very seriously how we comport ourselves. Just like with Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied, because the presence of God was strong, when they lied, they were struck down. First, Ananias and Sapphira, because they did not, they lied against the Holy Spirit. We, that judgment is not gone from us. We haven't experienced it, those who've listened to John Bayer's stuff on Fear of the Lord, because we haven't had the presence of God as strong, we haven't seen as much. But that is still present. That is not, that just happened in Acts Church and doesn't happen now. And the value and the point that I'm saying is, how we conduct and comport ourselves and where things are makes a difference in terms of whether the presence of God is there and also the judgment. So, verses 27 to 32. 
Therefore, whoever eats, eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So that's a lot there. What Paul is saying is, we need to examine our hearts and where things are. And there are consequences when we come. When he says unworthy, none of us are worthy. And so, well, I won't partake of the elements because I'm not worthy. And you're right. None of us are worthy. It's only Jesus Christ who makes us worthy. What they're talking about in terms of that is the attitude and disposition that we have. Are we coming to the, are we coming to the, the communion feast in a haphazard manner where we don't really care what's going on? where our focus is on um, what's going on around us. You know, oh, what are they wearing? What are they doing? Hmm, I'm going to go to the football game. Uh, who's playing today? And we're distracted about the week and we're not present to what's going on. That's an unworthy. Our disposition, our mind, what we do at that moment is, can be unworthy. So are we focused on the Lord? Are we trusting in Him? Are we seeking Him earnestly? That same solemnity, that same seriousness, it is, is what God's calling us with everything that He does. It's there with communion, so we do have a respectful moment of silence. We do have a time where we speak and we say, Hey, am I surrendered to you? Am I trusting in you? We confess sin. God, forgive me for not loving. Forgive me for being selfish. Forgive me for focusing on, my, on what I want and not on what you want. That's the whole idea of that unworthiness has to do with are you examining yourself? Are you looking to yourself? Are you taking this casually and going, it's no big deal? Okay, so that's the challenges. And so what he's saying is, when he says sleep, basically saying some died because of it. So there's a mistaken impression that God no longer judges us. God no longer chastens. God's judgment is not in de- in, in designed to condemn us. God's judgment is do- designed to chasten us. But honestly, if you're in a situation where He knows your testimony is going to adversely affect the kingdom, it's going to be a poor witness to what He wants to do, He may decide to call you home. That's within His purview. He could decide to say, you know, um, for the benefit of so-and-so's family and for the people that they're working, um, I'm going to call you home. Some are called home early. Some live a longer time. He's always going to work out to good. Going to heaven is obviously the individual's best good, but it may also be the best good for everything else, for everybody else. That's what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. I believe they're in heaven. He didn't condemn them to hell. They were involved, were there, they may have a relationship. But when, what happened with them, put fear in the church. It made people to seriously go, what God's doing is serious. So when we see the events happen, I don't want you to walk around and fear, God, if I do the wrong misstep, I'm going to die. That's not the intent of what I'm trying to say at all. 
What I am saying is God's going to work out to good. But His plan is much bigger than what we want. We think about just our small world of what we want to do. That's why missionaries have died. And you look at that and you go, how is that good? It was good because it planted seeds. It was good because it showed that people are willing to live a life of sacrifice. It was good that my pastor friend Steve got kicked out of church. How was it good? One of the good was it showed me what real humility was like, what it means to suffering was like, to suffer and persevere, what it means to stand for your faith, and that was what attracted me to it. All of his sermons, none of that made a difference. His witness and what he did in suffering is what made a difference. So what I'm saying is God's going to work it out to good, but it may not be the way that we envision. And that's why we see negative things happen, why we have suffering, because God's continually trying to make us more like Christ. So as so the idea, the, the onus on us is going, okay, the more Jesus there is in me, the more he's going to use you for his glory here. Okay? The more Jesus, the more he uses for glory. The more he gets glorified. The more that other people benefit from what you, what, you, what, you, what you stand for, what you proclaim. And we'll talk about that as well. So, so what, as I mentioned, so it's not eternal judgment when he talks about judgment. It is corrective judgment. Okay? God's plan in everything that he does with us, with the believer, is corrective. Judgment in terms of getting us back on the right step. Judgment in terms of getting us in the place. Sometimes, if there's a situation, judgment in a way where you may suffer, that others may come to Jesus. That others may go, hey, I need to really speak up about this. I have been lackadaisical. I've been focused on myself. I've been focused on my own situation going on. And he's saying, no, you need to press in. So let me just, and I'm going to summarize some things about some of the things we're going to talk about as well. So in verses 33, 34, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And I rest. I will set an order when I come. So, the basic says, you know, wait for one another. You know, be considered brothers. You know, you have the same thing. You wait for everybody, or you eat, and then, oh yeah, oh, I've been trying to say grace. You know, you're first when the table's served in front of you, you're going to eat, and everybody else is waiting. You know, we do that for... We wait till all the tables set. Everybody does, and we do. That's courtesy. That's common. That's showing love for others. You know, if you're really hungry and you haven't had a chance to eat, go ahead and eat at home. Because when you're there, the idea also is not to pig out. Okay, just because you have a meal. Now, what we don't do is we do communion, but we don't even do it the way they they did it. They did it where communion was part of the whole meal. It was a meal together they shared, and then the communion is part of that whole process. We just do this thing as a separate thing from everything else. That was part of how they broke bread, and they did it daily, if you saw that in the book of Acts. They got together daily, okay? And so there was that part where they realized what Christ did for them. They had a solemnity. They examined themselves when they were with one another. And the idea behind that is, when we do that, do we do that the same way? When we do communion, we don't pick out a communion. We just go and tie a little wafer and a little glass. You're not going, oh, give me some more, Okay? It's set up that way because of the way that we, we do it, but that's not the way that they did communion. Okay? And so the attitude, the attitude is the same thing. But the same thing applies for us when we get together for our fellowship meals. Are we considerate of others or are we chasing to feed ourselves? Now, I love to hear some people do when they talk about churches, and I, I read this, there's like so much stuff on communion on the web. Um, 
uh, he talked about some churches do what's called closed communion. Closed communion means you have to be baptized within the church. Roman Catholics will have what's called the closed communion. If you don't believe in transubstantiation, you can't go up there. If you're out of favor in the Catholic Church, you can't go up there. What? Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Basically, no. I can go up, so I can... I'm not sure what that means, but you can. But the best way to close communion. There are many churches believe in that. You have to be baptized within that church, or you have to be have a believers, even some Protestant churches, you have to have believers' baptism before you can partake in communion. Others do open communion. Anybody can partake. If you have a relationship, you're free to do it. Okay? I like what he says. Okay? What they do is what's called close communion. In this method, everyone present is invited to participate, but only after they've been warned of the consequences of partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Everyone present is urged to practice self-examination, and then they can participate if they wish. In other words, only those who are in close communion with the Lord are encouraged to participate. And I think to some extent, that's what Lauren has been talking about. There is something holy about that. We're not trying to dismiss it of anything. It is an opportunity, and every time you do, to really take that extra initiative to press in. This is where our volition to go, I need help. And you may be there, and your mind may be somewhere else. We have that privilege to repent at any time of the day. To go, God, I'm not even thinking the way I should be. I need to treat you with the reverence you're worthy of. I need to be considerate of what you've done for me. I don't appreciate what you did. And there's that chance to surrender and ask God for help. And if that's what it means by worthy, worthy means you recognize your condition and you recognize your Savior. So, I want to summarize some of the... Um, there's another one here. Chriswell said this. Be sure you are saved. Be sure you are right with the Lord. And be sure that you take it in the right spirit. So let's quickly summarize what is communion mean to us. It is remembering the work of Christ on the cross, his payment for the penalty of sin, and therefore the forgiveness of the debt of our sins. That's something we respond with praise, thanks, and humility. We get to see the common partaking of Christ's presence. So when we do that, and together, we have a common union together. We do it as a body together. It unites us as a body. It's a, it is a ritual in that sense, but it brings us together as one. It's a shared experience just like when we're in prayer together and when we do worship. Okay? It's, um, it's also a focus for us that our worship is on God alone. And there's no one else. We talked before in the other chapters about food given to demons, about partaking. When we're in communion, we recognize there's only one, and it's only God that we serve. Our focus is on no one else. So in that sense, common with everybody else, but singular on Him. It's also a place of purification. What Lauren was talking about, the unworthy measure, we bring judgment if we don't respond rightly. We have a chance to honestly evaluate our sinfulness and assess the condition of our heart. 
I mentioned earlier, it's a proclamation. When we do communion together, it proclaims what God has done for us. So we do that, it's a proclamation, it's basically preaching. It basically testifies to the world, this is what Jesus did for me. I didn't deserve this, and this is what he did for me. So when we get together in communion, it's a proclamation. And the last thing, it's a foretelling of what's to come. When we're in heaven, we'll be at the wedding feast. We'll be in heaven together, breaking bread together. It all sucks with analogies. There will be this fellowship together. There's this big wedding feast that we get to in heaven. There'll be this sharing. This nothing in this earth will compare to that. And when we do communion, it tells us a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. It lets us know that's what's going to happen. So when you're there before and you're thinking about that, all those things are important. So when we talk about examining, there's something. There is something. You know, I don't even know what to say. You know, the French say "je ne sais quoi." There's something about it that we can't understand. That's why, you know, the Lutherans and the Calvinists and, and the Roman Catholics take it seriously. We're not to take it lightly and dismiss it. It's not something to be casually done. It's very a solemn time. It basically says, just like our salvation, not to be casually done. It's a real memorial of what Jesus did. And I was sharing the story with James earlier, but I read one. It didn't get printed off. I hope that I'm going to go by memory. Um, it talked about this family. You know, they lived on this road that didn't have uh, much traffic. But uh, there were cars that were going by. And one day, the, one of the boys was on a bicycle, and he got hit by the car and died. So the father goes, and he picks the boys up. And they take him. They take the bicycle, and the bicycle is put in the garage that the boy's been buried in. And every time the father would go to the garage, he would see the broken bicycle. He'd weep. That bicycle became a memorial, a remembrance of what happened. The communion for us is not something casual. It is a real remembrance of what Christ did for us. And just on the day when God graciously saved us, it's an invitation for us to come before Him and to be profoundly grateful for what He did, does, and continues to do for us. So it is a memorial in that sense, not to be done willy-nilly, but how we are, it's important. How we are at communion, it's important. Don't come and think it's nothing. That's not the point that I was trying to make. I don't know if, honestly, is there something special just because of that particular behavior? I don't think so. That's me. But others think differently. Other holy men think very differently. There's something. There's something. So, don't dismiss it. Look at it as God's grace that he's offered for us, not for salvation in that sense, but an opportunity for us to get back right. We have that chance every time, every day there's new mercies. Every time we do that, there's a chance for us to be right before Him and to do it corporately. It's a beautiful thing as a body when we do things together 
And when I see others respond in worshiping, and when I see others before here on the altar, I am encouraged in my faith. It lets me know this is the right faith. Sometimes I'm crazy. I go out in the world and I think, yeah, is this, everybody, nobody operates this way. They all operate thinking of themselves. Are you real, Jesus? Did what you did really happen? It's a chance for us to live at that moment. And so we have to bring that into every moment. So some of us have that when we do grace. Grace is a symbol of that. That thankfulness that we do communion is a gratefulness. But the attitude of that gratitude that we have, we can bring in each moment of each day. Were there any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're grateful for what you've done in us, and uh, I'm grateful for the questions, Lord. Um, you are an amazing God, and you know what our needs are, Lord. So, Father, just continue to do your will within us to make us truly of one accord to appreciate how much you've done for us and to give you every bit of the glory you deserve. I pray a blessing on each of the men here, Lord, and, and their families, Lord, and their wives, Lord, just that you would bind us all together and you would get all the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.